Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. We begin a new series tonight. We completed our series on contagious Christianity. There's a lot of things that are contagious right now, in case you didn't know that already. Hallelujah. And I didn't think about us teaching from that topic during flu season, but that's kind of funny. Um, But we were talking about what it means to be a contagious Christian, and we were looking specifically at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, where he calls us to be salt. He calls us to create thirst in the lives of those who are around us for the things of God. He calls us to shine as the light of the world, that God's love emanates from us to the world around us. And that these things are to help direct people to him, not to draw them to us. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And so we understand that we are a part of that process according to Scripture. And so last week we began to turn our focus toward that long-term reality that our connection to people who need the Lord, who are wanting to grow in their relationship with God, does not end for us when we get them to come on this property where we get them to come to our life group, or even when we teach them a personal Bible study. Because we said last week the church is not a spiritual orphanage. It is not your drop-off point for when you feel like, okay, I've done what I could do, and I hope the staff knows what's going on now, because I'm all done. No. Because in the natural, and we compared that, that analogy that Jesus gave Nick at night, remember, in John 3, that analogy of being born again, of starting all over again, a new life, a new process for somebody, that our responsibility to our natural children does not end with their birth. Oh my, that is only the beginning of sorrows for you as a parent. That's why we leave the hospital with our babies. They make us take them home with us. And I know I was under the influence of all kinds of hormones and drugs and emotions the first time I had a baby, but I remember thinking in the elevator at Riverside Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, with precious Emma thinking, how can they send us home? We are not ready. This is child endangerment. Like, we are not equipped to take care of this screaming child. And yet, through the next series, we will look intently at some other words of Jesus, his farewell address, if you will, to the disciples before he left the earth. And we refer to this commonly as The Great Commission. And we've said it before in this Growth University form that we recognize the weightiness of that moment in Matthew 28 when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into the heavens. He's going to leave the earth. He's going to leave his life's work and mission with the disciples. 
right? The F troop, the A team, however you want to look at it. Jesus is handing it all over to them in this moment. And we do well to begin here for this series that we are starting tonight. We need to place ourselves in that critical moment in the disciples' experience with Jesus there on the Mount of Olives. You see, let's go back in time a little bit. Jesus, and that is the Mount of Olives, there it is. Jesus had been arrested, right? He had been tried, he had been beaten, he had been murdered, he had um, experienced great cruelty, he had been taken away from them. And even though the disciples knew full well because Jesus had told them, All of these things are going to happen. This is why I'm here. When it finally did happen before their eyes, they were shattered by Jesus' death. It saw them scatter themselves all around. They could not believe Jesus has died. And so thankfully, Jesus kept his word yet again when he rose from the dead. And the Bible lets us know that he spent some time visiting his followers before he left and went to heaven. And so he spent his post-resurrection time on a farewell tour of sorts. And our natural human experience tells us that if you're sick, maybe somebody in your life has been critically ill, or you're about to move, or you're about to experience a major life change, the things that you do in that time in anticipation of that change are very, very important. And they're very, very calculated. By you as the person exiting the scene, right? And it would be especially important for people like the disciples in this story. Jesus is getting ready to leave them in a physical sense permanently. And so in this moment, we turn our attention to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end Of the age. I want to read verse 19 to you in the New King James. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Go, tell, baptize people. But he didn't stop with just those three instructions. Jesus told them to make disciples. And through Contagious Christianity, we looked at the practical elements of what it means to go and what it means to tell people about Jesus and what he has done in our lives. And so last week, we ended that by considering that moment when we call this person to some kind of action. We ask a question that maybe sends us a good adrenaline rush of, you ready to go to church with me? Or... Can I teach you a Bible study? What about baptism? Are you ready to be baptized? And so now we've arrived at the threshold of our next series to pick up right where we left off. 
And for this series, we will be using a book by Stan Gleason called Follow to Lead. There it is. Brother Gleason's name has been heard around this church for decades, and he's been here several times. He serves on our external board, if you didn't know that. And he was also my dad's closest friend, so a trusted resource, to say the least. But I have to tell you that as I was studying today, I felt a great sense of confirmation about this series. There are so many things that have already happened this year to lead us up to this point in the Word of God. And I thought it might interest you to let you know that this book is actually one of the last books that my dad read. And he finished it at St. Vincent Hospital and thought it was truly amazing. It was especially meaningful to him because it was the subject of true biblical discipleship that was his thesis paper when he graduated from Urshan Graduate School of Theology. Those are his notes I thought you might want to see. I have them up here with me as my security blanket tonight. But I read it again today, and I highlighted it and marked it up, and I will be using some of the content from a very reliable source here to teach you tonight. But obviously, this topic is not new to the Calvary Church. And what we didn't realize was it would be one of Dad's last directives to us as a congregation to make disciples. So one of the points that Bishop Dad made at the beginning of his paper is something that I believe we have to consider now at the beginning of our series on making disciples. And it is simply this, that what Jesus was describing in Matthew chapter 28 and what the modern church has modeled are very different things. And this is not a point of criticism, but it is a point of truth for us to do better and to be more effective in this way. This is what we have to be clear about. We have to be honest tonight that conversion is not the same thing as discipleship. That moment of conversion in a person's life is not the end of their discipleship. We have limited the scope of discipleship unknowingly to simply define it as just training people, as educating them on doctrine and needed changes in their lifestyle. And we typically emphasize this after they've experienced the new birth. And we certainly value those things. We teach those things very intentionally here at Calvary. We teach them very systematically. But if we look further into the meaning of the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19, we find that there is a lot more to the Great Commission than we may have thought or we have practiced before. The hermeneutic of the word teach in this verse is very important for us to understand. It makes clear that what Jesus was telling his disciples to do after he left the earth, and I believe we have that word on a slide, all right? which means to teach mathetio, means to become a pupil, to disciple, to enroll as a scholar, to instruct, or to teach. Jesus was talking about much more in this verse than just an invitation to a service. 
He was talking about much more than just a conversion moment in a person's life. But Jesus was speaking of a one-on-one relationship for the express purpose of discipling someone. I have a quote for you from Bishop Dad from his paper. In application, wherever we go, we are to do his work via the process of relationship through which life experience and intentional, we know he loved that word, intentional instruction provide discipleship. And last week we talked a lot about transformation because it's at the heart of everything this book is about. It's at the heart of God's purpose for every person that was ever born. Simply put, if conversion was the end goal, then the New Testament would have ended with the book of Acts. Or even the Gospel of John, just depending on how they configured it, right? The epistles were written by Jesus' disciples because they knew that the new birth was not the end of the road. That's why Peter, who preached the message on the day of Pentecost, would write in his epistle, keep growing, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge because you have not arrived yet. None of us have till we spend eternity with Jesus. The great apostle Paul discipled people even from a prison cell. That's why he wrote those letters. I'm sure that precious man of God thought this is the best use of the time I have. Since I can't talk to anybody, I can't preach, I can't evangelize, I'm going to write to the church in Ephesus. Now sure, he was the one in Acts 19 who asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And the Bible tells us when they said, We don't even know about the Holy Ghost. Paul laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Paul was there when they were baptized. And yet it's Paul that writes to them the book of Ephesians to say, Hey, I'm checking up on you. I'm still discipling you. I'm still teaching you. I'm still coaching you. I'm still partnering with you because none of us are finished with this transformation yet. Because spiritual transformation is a lifelong process of maturing and growing in our relationship with God. We see this most clearly and systematically modeled for us in the book of Acts chapter 2. And these are verses we read a lot, but we're going to read them again. Verses 44 through 46. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They took it outside of the church. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as were being saved. And the Lord could add to the church daily because the church in the book of Acts was a daily church. That's how that 
was made possible. And so all of these things we just read, the first century church was doing their prayer, their study, their fellowship, their charity, even their church attendance had one thing in common. All of these things, according to what we just read, were relationship-driven. They were connected to each other. They remained connected to each other in a very intentional way. And at its core, the call to discipleship is a call to build intentional relationships with other people. And so that begs the question, what is a disciple? What does that actually mean? I submit to you tonight that when Jesus said those words, the disciples knew exactly what he meant. They knew it just, not just because they knew the words he was speaking, but they knew what he meant because of the kind of relationship they had had with him for over three years. You see, Jesus did not, and maybe you know this, you're more advanced than I was, but growing up, I just assumed that part of Jesus' radical approach when he came to the earth was this whole idea of follow me. But Jesus was not the first rabbi to do that. In fact, it was very common in this ancient culture for a religious teacher to call and invite somebody to follow them, to be mentored by them for the rest of their lives. It was a lifelong agreement. And so when Jesus approached Peter and Andrew and all those guys and he said, follow me, That's why they knew to drop their nets. They knew exactly what Jesus was calling them to do, to totally surrender their lives, to learn at his feet as a teacher. Isn't that amazing? And yet when you look into this process of discipleship, of someone following a rabbi in this time and place, the graduation process was very specific, and it was unique to the individual because there was no diploma There was no certification, if you will. But this came in the form of that disciple being trusted with the opportunity to have a disciple themselves. It was their passing of the baton to say, I have taught you and now you teach somebody else. You see, Jesus was letting us know that we cannot make disciples if we are not disciples ourselves. Process. According to Brother Gleason in the book, being a Christian generally speaks about what Jesus did on the cross for us. But the difference in being a disciple is about how we in turn respond to the cross with every area of our lives. And so this begs the question, and we need to answer it right now. How do we know that we are a disciple? Thankfully, we're not the first ones to consider this question. Jesus made it painfully clear to the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Because that's essentially what he asked. Because there was something in the heart of that young man that said, I've done everything I know to do. I've kept the law I've done it with my whole heart, but there has got to be more that I need to do to be a disciple. And so let's look at it in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. So the young woman was right. Jesus said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus invited him to be a disciple that day. Jesus's answer is very simple, but man, it is not easy. You see, the ruler knew there was more. He had checked all the boxes. He had followed the law. He'd been doing what he knew to do. But Jesus's answer has two very important elements for us to process personally tonight. Jesus said, sell what you have. And what that means, figuratively speaking, he was saying, relinquish the security that you find in the temporal. The things that you are attached to in this present world, let it go. Don't place value on it the way that you used to. And then Jesus told him, invest it, give to the poor. Invest in the only thing, young ruler, that will last forever. And that is people. People will live eternally. We know that. And so people are the only thing that we could give our time and our effort to that will outlive us. And so from this powerful exchange, we see Jesus, we see following Jesus as as an example that values people above everything else in life. Because God has been pursuing relationship with humanity since the Garden of Eden. It's why he created us in the first place. It is ultimately what put him on the cross. This desire to be in an eternal relationship with mankind. And this brings us to our app time tonight. All right? I want us to consider together, based on where we are right now in this lesson... What do you think the difference is between being a Christian and being a disciple? Hmm. All right. We're going to start our music and we will begin our discussion right now. All right. Sounds like a great time of discussion. I know Ben and I have solved the world's problems in the last few minutes. We've figured it all out. 
But we're talking in this series about God's model for church growth, for continued church growth. The book of Acts church certainly had it, right? How in the world did thousands of people join the church and stay in the church? Well, Acts 2 tells us they stayed connected to each other through very intentional relationships, through spending time in the word of God, fellowshipping together, taking care of one another in very practical ways. And through looking at the Great Commission and what the disciples did in the book of Acts, we see clearly that God's model for church growth and impact is through intentional relationships. We see the church in Acts being much more relational than any other time in church history. Just think about that. If you know anything about church history, you know that where we started and the process that got us up to this time and place, we got away from that original model quite a bit because they were being the church. And in our time and culture, it's more about going to church than it is actually being the church. Yet the effectiveness and the power of that first century church is without contestation. You cannot argue with what the Bible tells us, how effective they were, how powerful they were. I thought about that verse in Acts 17 where uh, they said, these who have turned the world upside down, referring to the disciples, how were they able to do that? I remember a moment of personal revelation for me in 2010, Tom and I had the privilege of chaperoning a AYC trip to the country of Greece. And I had been there before as a Bible school student, but Brother Strickland, who was the missionary there in Athens at the time, took us to the top of Mars Hill. And it's really something to stand in a place where you know the Apostle Paul stood. Just thinking about it, you could get goosebumps. But there we stood And I thought about the verses I learned as a quizzer in the book of Acts where Paul said, God who made the world and everything in it does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And what I realized that day, standing on Mars Hill, was that the backdrop for Paul when he was saying that was the mighty Parthenon. This imposing, fabulous temple to a pagan god. And uh, Missionary Strickland told us, and I had no idea, at the time, the columns, you know, are still very much present. You get a very good idea of what it looked like because the ruins are still standing there. And yet, Brother Strickland said, at that time, those pillars were overlaid in gold. There was so much wealth in that pagan culture. And yet, these disciples didn't even have a church building most of the time. Think about the impact of the Apostle Paul alone standing on that hill. What made them so powerful in the midst of such opposition, in the midst of such a limited set of resources, meeting from house to house really by necessity more than anything else? And yet we know that early church turned their world upside down. And I am telling you that a key part of that was this idea of making disciples. 
of being relationally driven, of being intentional in every connection that we have, not just to get them to the new birth, but that we're connected to people in such a way that someday they find themselves saying, what must I do to be saved? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I want to be an every day of the week church. I want the Lord to add to the church daily, to the Calvary church, because he can trust us to get our act together, to get our priorities straight, to let go of the temporal things of this world like Jesus challenged that young ruler to do. And to say, invest your time, invest your resources in the only thing on earth that will last. And that is the souls of people. And we are equipped to do that. God continues to equip us. We did not arrive in this part of our relationship with God on our own. Our story is filled with people who helped make us a disciple of Jesus. And so now the challenge for you and I, if we claim to be disciples, is now we must become disciple makers. We must understand what Jesus meant on the Mount of Olives like his disciples did that day because they saw Jesus model it every day they were with him. Jesus' interest in them was not just making them fishers of men and getting on his team. But when Ben and I were talking, I was thinking about Jesus going to pray for Peter's mother-in-law. Why? Because he cared about their lives. He cared and wanted to impact every part of who they were. And if that is our example, and that is what we have been the recipients of as the saints of God, that there are people who have touched our lives through every phase, every struggle, every setback that we've had. We've had somebody being the bridge to us to say, you can do it. This is how you live for God in this situation. This is what this verse means for you right now. Then we in turn must feel that response responsibility to become that disciple maker, to become that teacher in the lives of other people. Amen. Amen. Jesus, help us. I want us to pray together. God, I thank you for the power of what you're doing among us, Lord. I feel your hand resting on us in a significant way. And so, God, we feel you stirring our hearts. You have been stirring us toward this idea all of 2020 thus far. And so, God, I don't want to just be a Christian, Lord, that people identify me in that way, but I want to be a disciple. And if I am a disciple, then I am a disciple maker, that I am motivated to live my life in a very intentional way, to make myself available and connected through relationships with other people that see them follow you because of the example that I have set because of the way I have tried to invest and teach them. I thank you, God, for the cloud of witnesses in this room, for all of the people that have invested in this group right now. I think of our beloved bishop, God, who modeled this for us so specifically. We are the recipients of his teaching and his investment, his commitment to the eternal. I thank you, God, for that example to follow, for the clarity of your word that tells us what you want us to do, what we get to do to partner with you for eternity. 
Go with us, Lord, and bring us back to your house if you should tarry. In Jesus' name, make us intentional. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.